Amen. Thank you, Damaris. Uh, it feels like it's a good way to just center us as we begin. I uh, I want to make sure you're aware. Uh, if you had a little trouble logging on this morning, uh, Zoom has introduced a new security protocol, which is forcing me to, um, it sends you to a waiting room and I have to admit everyone. And so they're trying to adjust as their security goes. And uh, I'll see if I can't manipulate that so that you can just join us. But I appreciate their efforts, but it creates a little bit of a, a change. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> I don't know how many of you remember the movie uh, Captain America, you know, with Steve Rogers. Uh, if your kids were anything like mine, uh, we're big into Marvel, and as for me and my home, but uh, before Steve Rogers became Captain America, and before Hydra infiltrated the secret Brooklyn lab and assassinated the good doctor, do you remember the scene if you saw the movie? The doctor has this great, uh, quote that he shares this this he imparts this great wisdom to Steve Rogers who's a scrawny but but high character kid uh, and before he's going to get muscular and you know this superhuman power he goes through this and he says no matter what happens just be the same man we're not looking for a perfect soldier but a good man and when we forget where we started or where our abilities come from, we will always struggle to see how God's a part of every area of our lives. I wish, I wish that could be a talk we give before or a talk we receive before we come into money or become, before we come into uh, a, a developed talent, before we get any name recognition or industry spotlight focused on us. Just be the same person. We're not looking for a great programmer. We're not looking for a great entrepreneur. We're not looking for, you know, the teacher of the year. Just be a good man or a good woman, whatever. Well, I want to talk today about David. We've looked the last couple of weeks of what it means to speak truth into power, but what we know about David before he ascends to the throne is that David, as a young man, was already a good man before becoming king. And certainly, the years between being named heir apparent and then assuming the role, there was a lot of development going on. Now, maybe because it was his humble assignment. Uh, as the youngest son, uh, the son with seven older brothers, uh, being uh, simply being a shepherd. There was no glamour in his life. One guy said it this way, don't complain about the bottom rungs of the ladder because they helped you get higher. <laughs> so there's this picture that we have of some kind of developmental process that God is actually a part of. And even though we're not seeing immediate return on our investment, immediate results, the kind of success that we had hoped for, there is something that God is always doing, even when we can't perceive the growth and development. Now, all this being said, we see that all his low station in life offered him a chance to know God more to form a kind of conviction which will serve him well as a future leader. So as the series goes, speaking truth to power isn't so much about just always calling others out in some kind of prophetic way. 
it also means learning to find God's voice within the tension of our own daily lives and then us responding with conviction. So in the early years of David's life, after being named king, he just went back to tending sheep. Imagine that you were going to be told you're going to be the heir apparent or you're going to be the CEO. Now go back to the mailroom. That's the equivalent of what happens here. Samuel anoints him, but there's not like this immediate promotion to the throne. So he just sits on this promise and, be, and chooses to be faithful and grow where he's planted. Now, he's the youngest of eight sons. And there was a pecking order, the eldest son having half the inheritance with kind of in, working in his father's shadow. And then the rest of the sons in descending order would have a kind of greater uh, position in the family. Well, you knew having seven older brothers, he wasn't ever going to get a big head. But despite being the heir apparent, his dad has him running food supplies to the front lines of battle while the older brothers are in the army. In other words, he's employing the heir apparent to the king of all Israel as an errand boy. And this is the great scene that we see that everyone seems to know about is the scene of David and Goliath. The Philistines were the primary rival to Israel. And there was this valley that would sit right below the hills of, of where Jerusalem sat and Israel. And people would approach because if they could get to the high ground, they could take the rest of the country. So there was this big standoff where Goliath would come out and he'd march and, and he'd call out all the Israelites. Well, this is where we read about the story of David and Goliath. Now, I want to share some things that suggest to us both the developmental process that we all need to go through, but also some things about the story that might suggest that we might have had it all wrong all along, because most people have heard this story. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17, and I want to read in verse 34 through 37, as we see this young boy coming of age, he shows up with these delivered goods of food for the soldiers on the battle, and, he, and he's exposed to this Philistine insulting the people of God, which he takes as a personal affront. So in 1 Samuel 17, 34, we read this, but David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it down and killed it. Your servant has been killed, uh, has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine, meaning Goliath, will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. And the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear uh, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And so Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. So we have this picture of David not putting up with it. He feels like all of these accusations, all of this mockery is unacceptable. While everyone was too afraid to take Goliath on in hand-to-hand -hand combat, David says, put me in, coach. 
And Saul is trying to dress him in his armor. Saul and everyone around him are trying to talk him out of this, right? We know this story. But I want to talk for a minute about the bears and the lions. Because before he gets to the giant that is Goliath, he references all of the other obstacles that he's already had to face. See, sometimes when we want to experience God in the here and now, what we need to do is look over our shoulder and consider how to find God in the sequence of our lives. If you struggle with faith and confidence, if you struggle with conviction and, and, and belief, consider this. How has God delivered you from the, from the lions and, and, the, and the bears already? How has God already saved you, provided for you, um, uh, rescued you, delivered you? See, when David fought Goliath, it was no more difficult than fighting the bears and the lions that would attack his flock when he was just one boy on his own, tending to the care of the flock. And all alone, at all hours of day and night, it was his job to do battle. See, remember, Samuel had already been anointed. He was king in waiting, but he wouldn't stand for the mockery. So we, when he visits the army of the Philistine standoff, he hears the insults spoken to the Lord, and he's moved to speak truth to power. And here's the thing. Fear is always present but conviction can be greater than the fear. Defeat was also always an option, but affection for God was greater than personal comfort. This is a recipe for how we're supposed to grow faith. We don't become obedient after God shows up. We walk in faith and obedience and see God at work. He could not keep silent, and he needed no armor because he had never had it before. But he had always seen that God was faithful and had been with him. See, every day you and I encounter bears and lions. With the power to devour our thought life, our marriages, our reputation, we encounter daily bears and lions that can, that can conquer or destroy our joy, rob us of confidence, our patience, and we just can become unraveled. The way to prepare ourselves for battle or to slay the giants, as it were, in this story, is training our minds and surrender our hearts, our fears, our pride, our attitudes, our ambition to the Lord. See, the Christian life, and this is what we need to understand, is more about training than it is trying. It's a really bad idea to try to run a marathon that you have never trained for. Make sense? Christianity works the exact same way. We train by faith, knowing that it's not if, but when we are going to be required to trust God and, and have the kind of obedience that will be required. Like David, Jesus didn't one day show up at his trial and his crucifixion so that he could conquer death. Jesus prepared for it his whole life long. He developed a practice of listening and obeying. He developed a practice 
for solitude so that he could begin to hear the voice of the shepherd crying out in the wilderness amongst all the other threats, amongst all the lonely feelings, saying, I'm able to hear God through all of the other things that are clamoring for my attention. See, living the Christian life cannot be simply about being good and trying to avoid all the bad things from happening. We can't just live a life on the defensive. God wants us to advance the kingdom of heaven on earth and interrupt the hell on earth that so many of us already experience in a daily way. But Christian living needs to, needs, is what it needs is, is about knowing God in a personal way that you understand that he's near regardless of how afraid or how bad circumstances get. We've all dealt with bears and lions. So when we have the next big giant in our life, I want you to think about what God has already done, how God has already provided, how God has already been present. Now, this is where the story gets kind of interesting. Now, um, Malcolm Gladwell did a whole book, and there's TED Talks on it, but it's fascinating when he looks at the story of David and Goliath, of which has become so ingrained in our culture, even into our expressions. In fact, a lot of times when you watch like um, sports and you see a team that is clearly the better team on paper and even in their record, but some Cinderella story or some David and Goliath matchup, and you have this great battle of people that should have no business being on the same court or the same field as the Giants. But we use this kind of David and Goliath metaphor all the time, and David always becomes known as the underdog. That's how we refer to it at this stage, of being outmatched. And I would like to suggest, and this is kind of straight from Malcolm Gladwell's research, which I found was fascinating. You can just, there's like an 18-minute TED Talk that you can learn more about this. But he talks about, in ancient Israel, there were three kinds of warriors present in battle. And this makes sense if you understand uh, any kind of army or soldiering kind. I mean, we have our different aspects of the military, whether it be the Navy and the SEALs or the Army and the Rangers, uh, or whether you have the Marines. I mean, we have all these different branches, but in in an in a ancient army, there would be at least three different kinds. They didn't really have a Navy at that time. So what they're really talking about is cavalry, meaning there would be those armed men on horses. Typically, this might be with some kind of spear or, or a sword. Then there was heavy infantry, foot soldiers with swords and shields, but they were armored up. And then the third kind was artillery. Now, this is pre-guns. This is pre-gunpowder. This is pre-ammunition. So what are they really talking about? Two things, archers, which we know as bows and arrows, but also another category of artillery called slingers. Think of a, a kind of um, sniper, if you will, a kind of an assassin who, who sits back but is trained as a sniper. And what this sniper would do would have a leather pouch full of stones, smooth stones. And they had two cords uh, connected to it, and they would begin to wind up this, and we know it as a slingshot. 
Now, it's problematic when we think of slingshot, we think of like a boy's toy in his back pocket where he takes aims like this. That's not going to necessarily kill anyone. But you've got this other kind of device that generates a, a, a kind of um, deadly assault. So when when he starts winding, and we know the story because he sends these rocks right into the forehead of Goliath, don't think of the winding like a lasso, like doing one of these numbers. Think of the winding as like this, standing at his side and, and winding it up. Six to seven revolutions per second. That David, sitting alone in the wilderness, had probably been out there taking lots of of target practice, because he knew not if, but when bears and lions would come. And so he's developed this skill using an assassin's weapon. And even the ex most experienced slingers could hit targets 200 yards away. And so they were even said that some could even hit birds in flight. So this is pre-scopes of a rifle. This is before we have any kind of ammunition other than rocks and cords, leather cords, uh, to send this thing at a, at a death rate. Now, the slingers were often decisive in battle. And here, David was a slinger as part of the artillery. Goliath was heavy infantry. And when Goliath challenges all of the Israelites sitting atop a hillside with an advantage, but he's calling them to one-on-one -on -one battle, what he's meaning is, I'm challenging anyone to hand-to-hand -to -hand combat. So Goliath, in some sense, is just a sitting duck. But we've always thought about um, David as the underdog. So again, looking at First uh, Samuel chapter 17, verse 41, it, it, uh, what, what we find is that it says, Meanwhile, the Philistines went, uh, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked for David at, over and saw he was just a little more than a boy, glowing with the health and, and, and handsome, and he despised him. And he said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran out toward him to the battle line to meet him, reaching into his bag because what? He's part of the artillery. Taking out a stone, he slung it and he struck him on the forehead and the stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So Goliath led onto the valley floor was by an attendant. It seems to move, he seems to move more like a like a lumbering giant than any kind of cat-like reflexes of a ninja warrior. He doesn't seem too agile by this description. In fact, Goliath takes a long time to react to the sight of David coming off the hillside. And when he finally gets within eyeshot where he recognizes that he's not a man, he's a boy, and he looks at him as, and he identifies him as a willing volunteer, he says, wait a second, you're a kid. Am I like a dog that you come to throw sticks? 
Now, here's where it gets really interesting uh, as, as, as Malcolm Gladwell has unpacked the research. Medical speculation would say that there is a historic and current form of giantism called acromegalia. So acromegaly is what I think is how it's pronounced, is a benign tumor that sits on the pituitary gland that causes an overproduction of a human growth hormone. So it's speculated that this might be what Goliath had that made him up to nine feet tall, as some are speculating. Now, the tallest man in history that we know of is a man by the name of Robert Wadlow, who, while he was still growing when he died at the age of 24, had already reached eight feet, 11 inches tall. So throughout history, there are these famous giants that have acromegalia. And so Andre the Giant, the wrestler, was one of these people, you know, from Princess Bride. Andre the Giant was, it's even speculated that perhaps Abraham Lincoln had this kind of condition. But one of the side effects has to do with vision because the pituitary tumor, as it grows, often compresses on the visual nerves within the brain. So those with diseases will typically have double vision or at least be profoundly nearsighted. So when people speculate about Goliath, it sounds like someone with acromegalia, which sounds and also explains the behavior when we read about it in the text. So everyone looking down from the ridge, you know, he sees a guy coming up upon him and he probably just has this, this kind of, uh, not necessarily a stick, but, but he's got this, this cord, this, this leather strap with a pouch. And he goes, what are you coming at me with sticks? And he sees kind of a double vision thinking, what am I, a stick? You're going to throw it like a dog? So everyone looking down from the ridge who's in fear didn't realize that the very thing that they were, they were the source of their greatest strength was also his greatest weakness. They see a giant. They see someone who's formidable. They see someone that they couldn't take in one-on-one -on -one battle. And Gladwell makes the point that giants are not as strong and powerful as they seem. This is where our faith intersects with our obedience. But they do, don't, uh, but they do need to be addressed. The giants in our lives won't go away, whether it be resentment, whether it be unreconciled relationships, whether it be an abusive past, these things don't go away. Giant, but there's so much more, there's so much that gains power over our lives that we need to be able to speak truth to. And the truth is that we are made by God and for God. And our best life is when we know him personally and then can reflect it publicly. That's where we find most meaning and significance. So when you look at David, all of those lonely nights sitting in the wilderness with seven older brothers doing thing, chores that he probably prefer, and with only the company of dumb sheep and a liar, a fiddle that allowed him to recognize God's voice.
So he would play worship songs. He would play music, which he contributed to most of what we know as the Psalms, as declarations, as, as grieving stanzas, but dealing with intimacy issues with God. It's the kind of intimacy that only comes from being attentive and responsive amidst lonely and fearful nights in the wilderness. Scripture would say that perfect love, which comes from God, casts out all fear. And I would ask you, what are you afraid of today? What is the fear that you battle today? See, God's not going to slay any giants or bears or lions for us, but he'll be with us as we do it. But we can't do it without a conviction that leads us to trust and obey. And conviction is the thing that produces a kind of intimacy in, with, with God and causes us to act in faith. Wow. When I start reading about this and I start studying this, it gives me a whole new lens, a whole new perspective on it. Now, I want to tell you a story that doesn't totally match up with that. But there's always something that um, surprises me, particularly when I don't see a lot of progress. When I, when I get a little discouraged by my present, um, I, I, I have to look back and say, God, I, I, now I can see you at work all along. So David's sitting out in a field wondering, what is this going to lead to? How will this prepare me to be king of all of Israel? And it worked on his heart in these lonely wilderness nights with threats all around us. So this week, Annika called me and she had to tell me a story. For those of you who don't know, I, my daughter is 18 and she is a freshman at uh, Texas A&M and she's living in the dorms and we miss her terribly, but we're adjusting to life without her. But these are the problems we prayed for, that we would have high functioning children who are intellectually, academically, relationally, spiritually ready to exist on their own without mom and dad doing it all for them. And it hurts, but it's good. Well, she calls me because last Sunday, she was going to church with about four other girls, but she was the first stop in the girl who was going to pick her up, and they were all going to go to church together. But the girl calls her from the parking structure and says, oh my gosh, uh, I'm so sorry, but my car is not starting. And um, so Annika gets on her bike and she goes over to the parking garage because Somehow Annika thinks that she can help with automotive maintenance. This escapes me. But for all of their growing up, I've always tried to make them aware of at least, at least take care of stuff because whatever you break, I'm either going to have to fix or pay for someone to fix. So let's just care for what we have. Now, I'm mildly handy in a way that knows that when I'm in over my head, but I've always tried to help them be handy. And uh, I remember one time in high school, her battery was dying, and I took her with me down to the auto shop store, and we changed out her battery in the parking lot. And this guy behind the counter was so impressed that a father and a daughter would be working on their car together. And I'm like, this doesn't really count as working on a car. It's changing a battery. But I had her wrenching and doing all this. So, you know, all I'm trying to do as a parent is get ready to send them off so they So, backstory, but... Here's her story. So she shows up and the girl turns the car over and she goes, I think you have a bad, dead battery. She goes, how do you know? She goes, it makes no sound whatsoever. She goes, what do we do? 
And Annika knows that we have AAA, but she goes, well, here's what you do. And I don't know where she gets this from, but this was her solution. She goes, well, here's what you do. You look for the biggest truck that you can find and a guy driving it, and then you flag them down. You wave them down and say, can I get a jump? And so she goes, I don't think that's a thing. She goes, it's totally a thing, watch. And Annika comes out of her shell and she's standing there. She waves down a truck who pulls over and she, the guy rolls down the window and she goes, hey, my friend's car battery died. We're wondering if we could get a jump off your car. And do you have any car um, jumper cables? Because we don't have jumper cables. Now, I just want to say this as a side note, as a parenting fail, what dad sends their daughter to college without jumper cables is beyond me. So I'm going to go ahead and shade a little judgment towards whatever dad this is. But back to the story, right? Because here she is interrupting this guy's life and saying, um, can we get a jump? And do you have any jumper cables? And the guy looks at her and he goes, oh, sorry. I don't, I don't think I do. And Annika, not having a typical Annika moment, goes, oh, I'm pretty sure you do. Do you mind if I look? And he's looking at her like, okay, we'll unlock the door. So where she would find him in our car, my car, uh, her car, she jumps into the back seat of this guy's huge truck, some F-150, which is not terribly hard to find in College Station, Texas. And she pulls up the seat and she goes, yeah, here they are. They're right here. <laughs> So she pulls out these jumper cables and the guy's like, oh, I didn't even know they were there. And he goes, well, let me help you. He goes, no, it's okay. I got it. Just turn the car off and I'll, I'll, I'll turn it on when I tell you to. So she matches up red and black and positive and negative and says, turn it on. She goes, dad, at this point I realized I think I might've embarrassed him. So I asked him to come over and look at the car to make sure I got it right. You know, cause it's very big of her, right? And the car steps, the starts right up. And she has this moment where, you know, the light bulb comes on, the, the, the eyes of her friend get really big. The guy kind of winds up his car, his, his jumper cables and, oh, thank you so much. And he drives off. And her friend's looking at her like, who are you? Who are you? Like, where do you learn this from? And I have to say, then I had a little bit of a proud parent moment because here this kid is functioning on a high level. Meanwhile, I'm thinking of her as entirely helpless, particularly when it comes to her car. See, we don't ever get to see how God is at work. And some of you are going to face the day where you have to ship your kids off to school or have to give up a relationship that really matters or sign off on a job believing by faith that God might have something better or say no to your child because you know it's in their best interest. There are always giants that we are going to encounter, but there's always this sort of wilderness that we go through and we go, Lord, what are you doing in our life when I don't get to see the ROI, when I don't get to see the fruit of my labor, when I don't see where this is leading me and what this is all about? See, we don't know what we're capable of until we act on our own. If I was sitting in the car, she would have just turned to me and said, Dad, what should we do? So, in this moment, no one ever knows what we stand for 
until we actually stand. We don't really know what we believe until we take steps of faith. And in the case of the Israelites, they had a new rookie king in Saul. They had an army. They had a history of God, and they had an identity as his own. That's all they had going for them, and all they were doing for days on end was staring at this giant yell, insults. But they didn't know how to act. And if we are suspicious about the character and the nature of God, if we're suspicious that, that the battle has already been won in Christ, if we believe that God is generous or that God is, is patient or that God is in fact love or that God is compassion, then let those things form the convictions in how we live and respond to both threats and opportunities because that, friends, is a living faith. Can I pray with you? Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us a glimpse of the heavenlies in how you're preparing us for the giants that are going to face us tomorrow morning, for the, for the desperate season that we might find ourselves in today. I pray that you would give us the kind of vision that helps us see how you've been faithful all along. And while we might be tempted to think that was me, that was my strength, that was my intellect, that was my charm and abilities, may we see you being the architect and the author of our faith and how you're preparing us even amidst impossible odds to slay lions and bears, to take on giants by faith. May we feel your pleasure. May we have a growing awareness of your presence in our lives that we can act with boldness and confidence saying, my God is bigger than. So awaken our hearts. Would you awaken us so that we can walk from slavery until freedom, we can walk from, from oppression and injustice to deliverance and salvation. May our salvation become a living faith that we act in obedience, not waiting for you to initiate, but trusting you that you're with us as you lead us. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the one who conquered death in the name of Jesus. Amen.